This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. How are you? I'm sorry I'm late. I was on the Barbara, one of the big shrimping boats. I'm back at the Aransas Pass Progress newspaper and talking with publisher John Bowers. I need his help, but John has the same problems that any business owner has. How's it going? What's new? No, I've got zero problems that I didn't create, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to solve. At your house or where? No, here. That's the plumber I was talking to right there. I'm sorry. It never ends. After we chat for a bit, I ask him for a favor since he's been in Aransas Pass for decades. I need directions to where Dorothy Simons was buried by her killer in 1931. John pulls out this huge map. And you, did you have any understanding based on what I sent you where this body was? I know where it is. You I, do? I found out. Okay. So you came, you came right here along the causeway. Right. This brought you in Duran's path. Right. The body was right here, in this area, right here. So if I go straight down that way? If you go up to Wilson, you take a right, and you go through that light, mm-hmm. you come all the way down, there's there's Redfish Boathouse, Redfish Willies, that's all right in there, that's about where the body was. Wow, this is a good map, so right about in right here. Yeah. Now all this was not in existence back then, but the, the seawall and all that was right along in here. Apparently the body was drug over the seawall and dropped in here. And why would he do that? Why not just let it... I don't know. I've been thinking about that. Why wouldn't her killer just leave her in the bay and let her body float out to sea? Why bury her? Perhaps it was his twisted idea of love or respect. My parents are Jack and Lynn Lefevre. You might remember my stepfather from season three of Tenfold More Wicked, the story about Howard Pearson and why he murdered his parents. They're both really empathetic people, which is why I talk to them about these stories, particularly when the victims are young women. I bring them to the murder site. This is where they found the body? Yeah, in 1931. So this... not look anything like this, right? No, very muddy and... This has probably all been filled in since then. Yeah, pretty isolated, I would guess, at night. It's isolated at night now, baby. Yeah. I'm sorry, they think she was killed here? Well, close by. And then they think that he dragged the body over here. Jeez. My mom is a huge true crime fan. You've heard me say that before. But this story is difficult for her, probably because she can visualize it now that we're actually here. My parents have always had interesting theories, and they're usually right. Mom, you watch a lot of serial killer stuff. What does it mean when somebody is burying a body? I mean, why would you bury a body rather than let it go out to sea? Is it because they wanted her to be found? Well, it's isolated. Yeah, I I think he did not want the body to go out to sea. I think 
that he probably wanted her to be found. Did he have any kind of a relationship with this woman? Yes, they, they were dating. Yeah. I can understand. Well, this is a mean place to leave someone, that's for sure. Why? Oh, because the body would be destroyed. I mean, not only are they going to kill them, but they're going to destroy the body. Almost a week had passed since the discovery of Dorothy Simon's body in the summer of 1931. On August 2nd, Dorothy was laid to rest. Her parents and her brothers should have been allowed to grieve in private, but they couldn't. Because Dorothy's death was the biggest news story on the coast of Texas. The sheriff had taken in the young man she had been swimming with the night she disappeared. Newton Yarbury was Dorothy's on-again, off-again boyfriend, and he was labeled a troublemaker by some people in the town. The sheriff sent Newton to a jail in Stinton, just 30 miles away, to avoid a lot of publicity. This story was a dream for the press. An attractive young woman goes missing, only to be found dead, buried in a shallow grave on the beach. And her boyfriend might have been the last person to see her alive. The sheriff was convinced that Newton was guilty, and of course that makes sense. Newton had a dubious alibi provided by his parents. Dorothy told friends that she and Newton were going swimming in the bay that night. Who else would it be? But here's the problem. There was little physical evidence to tie him to her murder. And we've talked about the other suspects. We have Dorothy's biological father. We have Bill Strain's father. We have Tom Connor. And there might even be a random stranger in there, like one of those shrimpers. So maybe Newton was innocent. The sheriff continued to investigate using all of the forensic tools he had, which were not many in this case. I'm fascinated by the ways forensic science continues to evolve. The technology used in crime investigations today would have been unthinkable 100 years ago. I asked former federal investigator Fred Burton how investigations were handled back then. You have to step back and look at what forensics are available during that time period. You don't have a lot. You have, at best, uh, a justice of the peace, maybe a sheriff, maybe a Texas ranger that could be brought in to assist. You have a medical examiner, which for the most part probably would have been the local undertaker that's going to be called to the scene And undertakers weren't generally medically trained, so what other tools could they use? You're going to be first using whatever limited photography skills you have to take a picture of that if you do have a camera. And then you're going to slowly try to look around for whatever might be visible clues, such as a tire track or any other potential witnesses that might have seen something, whether it had been a fisherman. You're thinking through that logically. Forensic evidence might have been limited in Dorothy's case, but the number of suspects wasn't. At the top of the list were the two men who were possibly the last to see her alive, Tom Connor and Newton Yarbury. Could one of them have been so desperate for her affection that eliminating the other suitor wasn't enough? If the dejected man couldn't have her, then perhaps he had to make sure that no one else would. But there were other possibilities that needed to be cleared. 
There was Dorothy's biological father, Ralph Johnson. The sheriff tracked down Ralph and his family and interviewed everyone. Ralph, of course, denied that he had ever been a bad father, that he had plotted to have a Chicago gangster kidnap his daughter, and he absolutely denied being involved in her murder. He also had an alibi. Ralph's family placed him back home in Indiana, but who knows? Maybe they were protecting him. Howard and Agnes Simons had cut off all contact with him years ago, so they had no idea. Still, it would be foolish for the sheriff to rule him out, even if he did have an alibi. Then there's the suspect I consider to be the odd man out. Roy Strain, Bill Strain's father, was also questioned. He worked for a local car dealership, and he had asked Dorothy to travel with him to make deliveries several times. The Corpus Christi Times caller wrote this. Roy Strain, an automobile salesman, told of two trips, one to Skidmore and one to Rockport, where he repossessed automobiles, on which trips he was accompanied by Miss Simons. I wonder what happened during those car rides when he was alone with Dorothy. We already know that Roy Strain wasn't perfect. He liked to drink, he liked to carouse. The sheriff must have been curious about this too. I asked Michael Strain to read an excerpt from his father's blog. Bill had written an account of what his father remembered back in 1931 about this case. Dad went out on the front porch to talk to the deputies. When my dad came back into the house, my mother's voice could barely be heard. What did they want, Roy? My dad answered they wanted to talk to me about the Dorothy Simons murder case. I'll be going to the sheriff's office tomorrow to make a statement. Relief swept over my mother like a warm breeze. So this is very specific, this paragraph. When, when this happened when he was four, again, mm-hmm. is that family members? I don't know. I, it, it's hard for me to, I mean, I have memories from when I was four years old, and, and, but they're, they're gauzy, you know, they're not that specific. How was he able to fill in the blanks? Do you think he was able to remember that? I, I, I don't know. He remembered that, that my grandpa had testified. He, he also remembered my grandfather had been questioned, that they had come and, I think, asked my grandfather to come down to the police station and talk with them. I, I, don't, I never saw in the news accounts anywhere where they even considered my grandpa to be a suspect. But um, I'm sure that to my, you know, I mean, when you're a kid, you know, if your dad goes off the police station to talk with investigators, you would you would worry about that. I mean, do you think there's a chance your grandfather could have been involved? I guess uh, you never know. Mm-hmm. My father is was much more open-minded than me about these things. I, I would fall over dead of a heart attack if my grandpa was involved in Dorothy Simon's murder. I, but I knew him at a different time. I think he might have been a drinker and a womanizer and like that, but I, I can't picture my grandpa would be a murderer. There was also the possibility that a random stranger killed Dorothy, maybe a vagabond, someone roaming the country desperately looking for work. Or maybe it was an attempted robbery gone wrong. So her killer might not have been a jilted lover or a jealous boyfriend or a sketchy car salesman or an estranged father. Who was it? Someone killed Dorothy Simons, though there were still many questions. For example, it was unclear whether her murder was premeditated. Remember that Dorothy was found wearing just a bathing suit. The sheriff said her clothes were missing and so was her purse, even the shoes she wore to choir. Who would steal those things? The killer likely discarded them in the ocean, just another way to cover up evidence. 
But what if Dorothy had been murdered by a monster who had already killed? In the 1930s or earlier, someone who killed three people or more was labeled a multiple murderer. The FBI didn't coin the phrase serial killer until the 1970s when agents began to profile murderers who frequently killed to fulfill some kind of satisfaction. Dorothy's death seemed so violent and so well covered up that I wonder if the killer was experienced. I asked cold case investigator Paul Holes what he thought. Does this sound like someone who has done this before, or is it possible that someone could actually be this organized during his first murder? You could have somebody who has been involved in this body disposal process before. If you have a reasonably intelligent person who is thinking about, I want to commit a crime for whatever reason, how am I going to get away with it? What resources do I readily have access to or can get access to in order to get those resources lined up ahead of time in order to accomplish the crime? That's your intelligent offender. I searched the local newspapers both online and at the office of the Aransas Pass Progress newspaper, but it's hard to know what keyword to use since serial killer wouldn't be useful. Then I remembered that Bill Strain had printed dozens of articles on his blog that he and his son Michael found at the same newspaper office in Aransas Pass that I had visited. Michael had typed out thousands of words for his father's blog. I finally found something interesting. Here's the copy. A mystery man who strangled and attempted to criminally attack women in a number of South Texas towns in June was believed by Corpus Christi officers last night to be the murderer of Dorothy Simons. Really? I hadn't heard that before. And this man was attacking women just two months before Dorothy died. The reporter wrote, Officers recalled they were requested to keep a sharp lookout for a man who attacked women in El Campo, Yoakum, Beeville, and Victoria. I cross-referenced the article online just so I could confirm it. Two of these towns mentioned were less than 60 miles from Aransas Pass. There was a railway close to Aransas Pass that this man could have taken. The theory of a serial killer was absolutely plausible, and it created reasonable doubt that Tom Connor or Newton Yarbury killed Dorothy. So now police officers from Corpus Christi, the largest town in the area, believed there could be a connection between those killings and Dorothy's murder. I kept digging for evidence of this strangler, but it didn't help my search that there was a professional wrestler in the 1930s named Ed Strangler Lewis. And then there were more complications. A woman had been strangled in her own home three months earlier, but that happened in Dallas, almost 400 miles away. I would say that's a pretty far-flung hunting ground for a serial killer, but we now know that they can and do travel like Ted Bundy did. Just something to remember. There was a serial strangler in San Diego and one in New England. All of this reminded me of the violence of choking someone to death. Often, bones in the neck break. And manual strangulation is particularly personal, maybe the most personal of all murder methods. Police see it often in crimes of passion. Your hands can be dangerous weapons. Investigators in the 1930s just didn't have enough evidence to tie the serial killer to Dorothy Simons. There were loads of ne'er-do-wells in Aransas Pass. Ex-convicts and drifters and sketchy shrimp boat workers. And suspicious carpenters like Tom Connor. 
The sheriff was stymied in the search for Dorothy's killer, and theories about a motive for murder were wide-ranging. I found this excerpt on Bill Strain's blog. He's writing from memories he had as a four-year-old boy. There was a lot of talk about the murder of Dorothy Simons. I know that from the time her body was found until several years later when the last trial was held, it was a conversation explored in all the homes of Aransas Pass. I seem to remember adults discussing the possibility of Dorothy being pregnant, but I think in 1931 you couldn't even use that word in the newspapers, certainly not on radio. It's not clear how far these rumors traveled. They may have made the gossip rounds within the St. Mary's Church members. It was certainly discussed in Bill Strain's childhood home, but it never made it into the papers. The rumored pregnancy might have been speculation on the part of Dorothy's friends, or a way for people in the town to smear her reputation. Pregnancy would have been a disgrace for an unmarried young woman in the 1930s. There were people who saw her not as the angelic choir girl, but as a teenager with a wild streak and loose morals. Earlier, we talked about Roy Strain, Bill Strain's father. The sheriff quickly ruled him out as a suspect. Yes, he spent time alone with Dorothy. Yes, it might have been inappropriate, but it didn't make him a killer. There just wasn't any evidence there. Dorothy's biological father, Ralph Johnson, was also a suspect, but his family insisted that he was in Indiana with them. He had once threatened to kidnap Dorothy so Agnes would give him money, yet he never threatened to harm his daughter. So the police turned their attention back to the original prime suspect, Newton Yarbury. And this time, the district attorney convened a grand jury to decide if he should go to trial for murder. The DA presented evidence to the grand jury in the case of the state of Texas versus Newton Yarbury. The prosecutor interviewed witnesses and heard a bit about his relationship with Dorothy. I called the clerk's office in San Patricio County where the Stinton jail is. It took a bit, but they finally tracked down the original statement from the grand jury. They spent a lot of time deliberating, and on August 10, 1931, the jurors issued this statement. The grand jury have thoroughly investigated the facts surrounding the killing of Dorothy Dorcas Simons, and at this time returned one bill of indictment against Newton Yarbury in connection with said killing. Newton Yarbury would face a murder trial. And yet, the judge released Newton from jail on a $3,500 bail bond. It's not unusual for a bond to be set for a murder charge, If this were a capital charge, it would probably be different. He probably wouldn't get a bond. A capital charge means murder coupled with another felony charge like robbery or kidnapping. One of the reasons that Newton was likely offered bail was that the sheriff didn't have enough evidence against him. Also, a person's prior criminal record comes into play, and Newton seemed to have a clean record. But clearly, the Yarburys were wealthy people. $3,500 was a lot of money back in 1931. It would be about $65,000 today. I talked with a friend of mine who is a criminal defense attorney, and he said that Newton's bond was sizable. And that's probably because this murder was high profile. It certainly seemed that the Yarburys had easy access to the funds needed for Newton's bail. But there might be a red flag here. With much of America deep in the Great Depression, 
I wonder how many people actually had that much money in cash. Probably not many. And certainly not in a working-class town like Port Aransas. I looked into the Yarberry family some more, and I'm guessing Bill Strain did that too. There wasn't much about them in his blog, but remember that much of his research was done before some newspaper databases were developed online. I wanted to find out what position Newton's father, Alex, held at Humble Oil and Gas. It turns out that Alex Yarbury was a pipeline worker. That might not sound like a job with a high salary, but even during the Great Depression, oil in Texas was booming, and the Yarburys had been in Aransas Pass for almost 30 years, and it looked like Alex had actually worked there for decades. As I was coming through articles from the early 1930s at the local newspaper, I was reminded of how lawless this time period was. Prohibition was put in place to help solve society's social problems. With liquor sales banned, an illegal industry was forced underground. Robbery and bootlegging and loan sharking all helped the alcohol continue to flow. So Aransas Pass was a place where illegal things happened all the time. Meantime, not only did Alex Yarberry pay Newton's bond, he was also intent on protecting his son. And soon, Newton's father shifted suspicion for Dorothy's murder onto someone else. Alex Yarberry filed an official complaint of murder against Tom Connor. He was the young man who also saw Dorothy Simons the night she was killed. He had admitted that he escorted Dorothy from her friend's home to downtown Aransas Pass. Of course, I wanted to know exactly what the complaint said, so I searched for some kind of written record, but nothing turned up. I can only assume that this stemmed from Newton's pretrial hearing where Tom had admitted that he was with Dorothy that night. Any citizen could file a complaint. And once Alex Yarberry filed one, the sheriff brought Tom in and decided to arrest him for murder. A pretrial hearing would decide if he should go on trial. When reporters asked Alex Yarberry about the complaint, he said that the sheriff wasn't giving Newton a square deal. And Tom seemed like a very likely suspect, which is true. On Monday, August 6, 1931, the Corpus Christi caller printed news about Tom Connor's arrest. Tom sat in the Stinton jail, the same one where Newton had been. When the sheriff approached Tom, searching for answers, he played it cool. Yes, he admitted to seeing Dorothy that night. Yes, Newton seemed angry. But Tom had an alibi, a pretty good one. Several people were ready to say that they were with Tom Connor that night at a get-together from 9.30 until midnight, right when Dorothy was likely murdered. But despite a strong alibi with multiple witnesses, Tom Connor wasn't getting off that easily with the sheriff. He still appeared to be pretty suspect. Michael Strain told me that his father, Bill, dug up some details that also seemed suspicious about Tom, but they really weren't that damning. He had apparently done a bad check in Oklahoma. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, he's a real criminal. He passed a bad check. And maybe in 1931, that was a big deal. But uh, they were trying to make him look like he was a real criminal. With Tom Connor in jail, newspaper reporters asked Dorothy's stepfather to make a statement. But Howard Simons refused. The family was surely grieving, so maybe they simply didn't want to be bothered. That's understandable. But frankly, Howard Simons was confused. He had never suspected Newton or Tom at first. 
but they were both with her the night she died. Howard liked Newton, and he didn't know 30-year-old Tom very well, but something was a little off. Newton hadn't come to talk to the Simons after Dorothy died. Perhaps Newton felt guilty, or maybe his attorney told him to stay away from them. Either way, Howard Simons was having a change of heart. He was afraid that Newton Yarbury had killed his stepdaughter. The grand jury had already decided that Newton Yarbury should stand trial for murder, but the panel also considered Tom Connor's case. He was still sitting in jail as Newton left Stinton for Aransas Pass out on bail, but Tom had an alibi, no serious criminal record, and no motive. After considering all the evidence, the grand jury closed the case against him. They said, We also return a no bill against Tom Connor as to his connection with said killing. Tom Connor was officially cleared after sitting in jail for four days. Now, I asked Michael Strain about Tom and what he thought about the case against him. And he thought maybe he should have been looked at a little more closely. He did get arrested, but he was almost immediately released because they just didn't have anything on him at all. They should have investigated him more. In the meantime, the rumor that Dorothy had been pregnant at the time of her death was still circulating around town. Now, there was an autopsy, but the sheriff never publicly released the results, which didn't help with all the rumors. If she had been pregnant, he probably would have said something about that. And now the prosecutor was planning his attack. He argued that Newton Yarbury was incredibly insecure and very jealous. Maybe the young couple started the evening on a pleasant note, both looking forward to their date to go swimming. And then maybe Dorothy said something that offended Newton and threw him into a fit of rage. Maybe she broke up with him. Then he lashed out and overpowered her. Maybe Newton had killed Dorothy accidentally or in a fit of passion. There were several scenarios. What if Newton were spying on Dorothy? She was young and popular and attractive. She might have flirted a little bit, too. Newton might not have trusted her, especially after seeing her with Tom Connor. They might have just been having an innocent conversation, but it threw Newton into a rage. What if Newton were actually in love with Dorothy and he didn't mean to hurt her? What if he panicked and rather than face a murder charge, Newton moved her body to make it look like an accidental drowning? And then there's the very real possibility that Newton planned the whole thing after he saw her with Tom, that he was so jealous that he wanted Dorothy dead. And if that's really what happened, Newton Yarbury had committed one of the worst crimes, premeditated murder. On September 23, 1931, jury selection began. In any murder trial, picking jurors is critical to both the prosecution and the defense. This takes me back to season four and the murder case against the Tiger Woman, Clara Phillips. If you remember, she was poised and charming and attractive and intelligent. She was also an accused killer. She was put on trial for savagely murdering her husband's alleged mistress. Contemporary forensic psychiatrists labeled her as a psychopath, 
a female psychopath, which is unusual. The jury at her trial was largely male. Only three female jurors were on the panel. All three wanted to convict Clara Phillips of first-degree murder, but the nine men on the jury were swayed by her charms. Her conviction was reduced to second-degree murder with a 10-year sentence. The three women jurors wanted to see her hang, said the jury foreman, but compromised on second-degree murder. Supposedly, Clara's smile had softened the hearts of male jurors. I believe it. I'm always interested in injecting important developments regarding women's history into the stories I cover. It's a given now that in U.S. courts of law, there's usually an equitable number of men and women serving on juries. That definitely wasn't the case 100 years ago. Women's formal inclusion in public life was that limited. By 1927, only 19 states allowed women to serve on juries, and Texas wasn't one of them. So Newton Yarbury's jury was all male. Let's return to one of the biggest dilemmas in this case. There was very little evidence found at the crime scene, especially since the murder site was the ocean. Without physical proof, it can be challenging to try someone for murder. This killer was meticulous. He seemed to have searched the area near the seawall to carefully remove any clues. Almost all of the clues. There was actually one piece of evidence left at the scene. Muddy footprints in the sand. Criminal intelligence analysis is a key component in felony murder trials. But what happens when forensic evidence is almost non-existent? Or when the minimal amount that's been gathered is potentially unreliable? I asked defense attorney David Shepard how the courts manage situations like these. Let's talk about some different elements to cases, specifically about reliability of certain pieces of evidence. Footprints, are they reliable? Any scientific evidence or expert evidence, the quality of how reliable they are depends upon the quality of the expert making the judgment. If you've got good experts, the kind of evidence can be very reliable. If you've got poor ones, not so. Like footprints. I mean, footprints are really tricky. Sure. It depends on the, the physical circumstances, the material that the footprint's in, how, how long since the footprint was made, what's happened to it since it was made and before it was preserved. Those can make it a very difficult call in, in trying to match up a footprint. So I think that's pretty weak evidence as opposed to, say, DNA testing, which, if done right, is extraordinarily powerful and accurate. But in the 1930s, boy, the availability of forensic anything was pretty slim compared to now. It was the Wild West, and not even the 1930s. I mean, up until really just the last 20 years have the courts started to rein in these ridiculous experts. Just some local deputy sheriff decides he's an expert on whatever, and he's the only person on the planet Earth that can do it. And, you know, you'd see that kind of stuff come in. So, no, there's, there's been a real tightening up just in the last 20 years on the courts kind of taking control of the field of experts and what's admissible or not. Newton Yarberry may have been out on bail, but he must have known that this trial could be difficult. The DA met with the sheriff and went over the evidence, which wasn't a lot, but they did have those muddy footprints. It was Sheriff Hunt's job to analyze the prints and measure them for size. His conclusion was made public. He reported that the bare footprints were comparable in size to those of Newton Yarbury. Although the sheriff was insistent, the footprints were still considered circumstantial evidence. 
There were apparently also shoe prints near the water. The sheriff measured those prints, and they seemed to match Dorothy's shoe size. And there was new evidence, something more solid than footprints and shoe prints. An investigator gave a statement that Newton Yarbury's body showed signs of a physical altercation. He had scratches on the right side of his neck and on his back, just below his shoulder blades and at the small of his back. That same officer said Newton's feet were cut with seashells and punctured with thorns. It's a defense attorney's job to work in their client's best interest, to protect the accused, whether that client is innocent or guilty. My father used to say that everyone deserves a defense. To build Newton Yarberry's defense, his lawyer planned to use an unseemly legal tactic. He wanted to shift the focus away from the murder suspect by constructing a narrative that put Dorothy's personal character on trial. It's called victim blaming. I wanted to take a closer look into how this method can play out in court. Defense attorney David Shepard has been an excellent source for presenting complex legal concepts in an accessible way. So first, I wanted to make sure he had enough information about Dorothy's case, so I filled him in. And then we talked about how she was described in Aransas Pass and how Newton's defense attorney could use that against her. So her character was immediately in question because this is during Prohibition. Dorothy swam with young men in the channel at night, and she drank and she smoked every once in a while. And this wasn't, of course, what proper ladies did in town in 1931, Texas. Defense attorney's job is to try to undermine the credibility of testimony, and that's a very unpleasant thing for a defense attorney. And I know that can happen with survivors of sexual assault, right? Victim blaming. And it's what's most harmful and most frustrating to the women victims is the questions, you know, well, how were you dressed? How much did you have to drink? Weren't you being provocative? Didn't you lead him on? Weren't you saying no, but weren't you really implying yes? And weren't you creating a situation where he almost couldn't control himself? And it is disturbingly effective. And it's uh, used all the time at the investigative stage. And then if a case comes to trial at the trial stage by the defense counsel. And you said the defense will gather evidence against the victim. And um, pull their social media history. These kids put everything on social media now. I want to revisit that term, victim blaming. It's alarmingly easy to disparage a person's character using social media And many times, it's bluntly obvious when that is someone's intent. Judge Dimple Mahaltra and I talked about the dangers of victim blaming in a court of law. Is there a line, you think, as a judge between, and I'm sure you've seen this in domestic violence court, between disparaging the victim and trying to to disclose facts that could affect the outcome of the case? Certainly, defense lawyers are entitled to use information that they have that they believe is mitigating in trials to disprove the assault. But I think it's when they cross the line of trying to disparage and shame and use the trauma that the victim has endured against her. Judge Malhotra says that defense attorneys sometimes cross a very dangerous line. I've seen defense lawyers imply that the victim likes the abuse or that she likes the drama and that she's histrionic and that she invites this kind of dynamic. 
into her home, into her relationship. So and she's as culpable as he is. So she's as culpable. She's the common denominator. And don't you know that she filed a protective order against her ex-boyfriend? And she's crazy. She's crazy. She's on drugs. She's dramatic. Unfortunately, victim blaming in the criminal justice system is far too prevalent today. Women who choose to face their assailants aren't just at risk of being shamed in the courtroom. It's a phenomenon that plays out too frequently in the press as well. Back in episode one, I talked about how living members of the Simons family seem to know very little about Dorothy. Nancy Coppage is the daughter of David Simons. He was one of Dorothy's two younger brothers. When I spoke with Nancy, I wanted to share some of the research materials I found while investigating this case. What is the impression that you got of kind of just even reading newspapers who Dorothy was, what kind of person she was? Do you have a kind of a picture in your head of who she was? I have a better picture now after reading some of this because there was she was not spoken of as, you know, a person, what her personality traits were. Um, as you saw in the newspaper articles, they kept referring to her as the pretty choir girl. Um, and yet, during some of the proceedings, talked about, oh, she was swimming with guys at night. That was very bad. Oh, she's a loose woman out there. And yet, I'm sure she had some issues with her mom being who her mom was. But I'm so glad that you shared this photo of her, because that's the closest of anything that I've ever seen to a picture of her. Nancy's comment that Dorothy must have had issues with her mother didn't strike me as being unusual. Most mothers and daughters have their disagreements and minor clashes at times. My mom and I still bicker, and I'm in my 40s. And even if Dorothy did have a bit of a rebellious streak, it didn't sound as though she had done anything really terribly wrong. It sounds more like she was a typical teenager who occasionally liked to have a little fun. But as her trial approached and both sides prepared, two very different profiles of Dorothy Simons would emerge. Drinking and smoking and swimming with young men might not seem like a big deal now, but each of those was virtually a sin in the 1930s. Dorothy's family would certainly pay a big price, and their daughter's suspected killer might just go free once again. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I remember David saying, when I grow up, I'm going to kill that Newton Yarberry because of what he did to my sister. You used an interesting word, which is obsession, which is very, of course, common for people who are interested in true crime. Did he talk about it a lot? I have seen the binder. It's impressive, and it's very thick. No, no, I I don't even know that I've seen the binder. I don't think that he realized what he had done until, until she died. She was dead. He just wanted to scare her. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Laura Sobel, and Alexis Amorosi. Co-writers Laura Sobel and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend, composer Curtis Heath, artwork Nick Toga. 
Executive Producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can hear every episode one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.